There's a lot happening with New Jersey's child welfare system. We want to help you make sense of it and share our story. This is DCF on the Air. This is DCF on the Air, and I'm Jason Bukowski. This podcast series from the New Jersey Department of Children and Families is focused on those transformative elements that are reshaping how we work with and connect to families to help meet their needs and empower them to become and remain safe, healthy, and connected. And so far with each episode, we've spoken to individuals working within the department to affect change and transformation, who are thought leaders in their field, working in exciting and creative ways to bring about what comes next in child welfare here in New Jersey. As we say in the introduction, we're sharing our story. And so naturally, we're mostly going to focus our lens internally. But the story of family supports and family need, it doesn't end at DCF. When we talk about the child welfare system, we're always careful to note that the Department of Children and Families is just one component of a larger system of supports. When families need help, they're not always starting the conversation with DCF, nor should they have to. Sometimes they might reach out for utility assistance or affordable housing, or as in this case, with help accessing nutritious and affordable food. But when we consider that so much of our work overlaps with other programs and agencies, it's important to break down some of the silos and barriers to give families the ability to easily access help without having to run from state agency to state agency. At the end of the day, when families need a helping hand, they're not concerned about which agency provides it. They just want to know that help is available. In an effort to expand the safety net for families dealing with food insecurity, in September 2021, Governor Murphy signed legislation establishing the Office of Food Security Advocate, and within the year had appointed Mark Dinglossen to serve as director of the office. At the time of his appointment, Mark was working as an executive director of CUMAC, the largest anti-hunger organization in Passaic County. He was also deeply connected to our work on adversity and adverse childhood experiences, so it was great to have a friend uh, connected to this vital lifeline for families. Mark leads a small but mighty team working to transform the food access landscape, to recognize that food insecurity is adversity, and to ensure that good, nutritious food is available to families to offer them a sense of choice and dignity when connecting to help. Mark is joined today by his teammate, Dr. Jenny Schramm, and I'll turn over to Mark and Dr. Jenny to introduce themselves and their work. I'll start? Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for having us. Uh, I am Mark Dinglossen, uh, food security advocate for the state. I think uh, uh, when you're talking about our work, you're talking about the office in general first, right? Yeah. I think from my personal perspective, Jason, I can tell you that um, I view this office um, and our role as being one of uh, being a convener and a collaborator. There's no reason for us to create new programs. Uh, there's no reason for us to, um, you know, reinvent the wheel because a lot of the great work, I mean, before the cameras even started rolling, we were talking about all the great work that the Department of Children and Families is doing. Um, but rather, it's this important thing that uh, you and I were also talking about before the camera started rolling about how can we make sure that everything is interconnected and all the great work that's happening on the front lines, that's happening in the different sectors, um, that's happening in different state agencies is all interconnected and where can we find ways to work together 
and then this office can do all of that under the the main goal of creating consensus around what truly do we mean when we say food security, right? And how can I um, build consensus around this idea that true food security exists when all people at all times have physical, economic, and social access to safe, sufficient, and nutritious food for both dietary and cultural preferences for both an active and healthy lifestyle. Great. Thanks for having me as well. Dr. Jenny Shrum. I am the Research and Evaluation Strategy Manager, the Office of the Food Security Advocate. Um, and a lot of what I'm doing, especially in the first year at the office, um, speaks to what Mark was saying about collective understanding about what we need um, when we talk about food security and what we mean when we talk about food security. So a lot of right now is identifying thought leaders, literature, academic pieces that really better define the social issue beyond just uh, the word hunger, right? So there are many factors when we think about food security um, beyond just physical access to food or economic access to food. It's also, is the food usable to that household for their cultural needs, for their medical needs? Do they have the appropriate resources to prepare healthy uh, meals in their house? So when we think about all these factors, um, getting everyone to be on the same page and acknowledging them and acknowledging some of the coping strategies when we talk about food insecurity and the consequences of food insecurity. So while we're identifying and sharing all of these ideas and factors that are well identified, uh, we're also looking at New Jersey and looking at where are there gaps in our resources and services and where are there strengths or assets in our resources that we can provide. Um, one, for collaboration for people, and two, just to better inform the public, the general public, about what they can access to support you know, the needs in their own household. Great, and I really appreciate you both taking time to be on today's podcast. Um, I wanted to jump right into it because I think that from your intro, you were both had said something about um, defining food security and defining what that is. And I know from our conversations previously, Mark, when, when we were talking about um, adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, um, that you have a little bit of a different philosophy about food security or food insecurity. Um, and I know that even it extends even to some of the vocabulary that we use. Yeah. Uh, can you speak a little bit to that? Um, so my background, my professional background um, that I built up in uh, Chicago before coming home to New Jersey is actually around um, diversity and equity work and juvenile justice work. Um, so when I came home to uh, New Jersey in 2017, my two choices were go into the juvenile justice space. Um, I had that job offer, but then I also had a job offer to uh, take over the anti-hunger organization I was taking over, CUMEC. And um, I went with the job offer at CUMEC and told that board, if you hire me, we're going to do things very differently. And they said, what does that mean? And I said, well, ending hunger has nothing to do with giving people food. Feeding people is about giving people food. But ending hunger is about wrapping supportive services around families so that they have the power um, to be the ones to define for themselves what they need and go after the services that, that they need. So it was a very different viewpoint for the board uh, for that organization at that time. And then I further just painted the picture of 
everything that I was seeing in juvenile justice in Chicago about what families actually needed and how they needed not just services, but they needed just that extra nudge to build up their power and their dignity again. And so for me, going into the food security space, it was about how could I take everything that we were learning and doing in juvenile justice in Chicago and overlay that onto an organization that has the ability to move 3 million pounds of food. And rather than focusing on moving food, how do we focus on moving the needle right, for, for, for families? So that was the perspective that I, that I took. That was the challenge that I posed to the board. Um, and that started the transformation of that organization. And that started my work here in uh, New Jersey um, to introduce this different uh, viewpoint on, yeah. on food security work. And I mean, asking families what they need and kind of engaging them in that conversation. Um, that's an area where I think state government needs to move more into, because I think it is ultimately about trusting the family to know what they need and to uh, be able to make the choices that they need to make in order to thrive. So I think that that's really powerful. And I think it definitely resonates with, with our audience and with our department. Um, when we talk about food insecurity, Dr. Jenny, mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if you can give us a sense of how big is the problem around food insecurity here in New Jersey? Um, what's the data telling us sure. about what this looks like? Absolutely. So I brought for you the USDA, hot off the press, has some new, <laughs> new uh, food insecurity numbers that just were published last week. Um, and so these numbers are for 2022. Um, and the numbers for the national prevalence of food insecurity have significantly and statistically and significantly increased in the past year. Um, so a lot of that and some of the, the factors attributed to that are, right, we all are seeing a lot of inflation, the cost of living, right? Plus, we saw the end of a lot of pandemic emergency relief um, that bolstered some of the resources in terms of accessing food. Yeah. So with th those factors considered, uh, we're seeing an increase in food insecurity. Nationally, we're almost at 13% of U.S. households, um, and specifically households with children, it's about 17%. And that's usually what the numbers show. It's usually households with children have higher rates of food insecurity. Um, so in New Jersey right now, about last year, we were a little under 8%, and this year, we're almost at 9%. So we're seeing an increase here in the state. And while we don't have the numbers available yet for households with children, it's likely also higher um, and increased over time. Um, and I think it, it draws attention to, you know, the breadth of factors that are contributing to the issue and is a call, really a call to action for really thinking about the social issue from many factors on how to how to address it, right? So especially when we think about children, what are the all the different benefit points or access points that children are accessing food? A major entity in that is schools and thinking mm -hmm. about, there's a lot of conversation about healthy meals in schools and there's several programs that are attached to it. Um, so I think it's brought you know, some renewed interest into exploring what that, that benefit looks like and how it can be approached um, in a very, as you're saying, self-determined way, right? Are the foods that we're offering, are they appropriate and um, usable to what I think is a strength in New Jersey, our very diverse population too, right? Sure. Um, that has a spectrum of needs associated with diet. Yeah. I remember um, at one point, I think it was 
during the pandemic. And again, this was because we had the resources to do it mm -hmm. um, because we were getting a lot of resources from the federal government. But my, my own children's uh, school district made lunch available to all students. Mm -hmm. yeah. And my immediate reaction, um, and I think I said beforehand, you know, we're, we're the bleeding hearts of state government. So <laughs> my immediate reaction was, I don't need this. We don't need this. They don't need this. We can provide for them. It's, I don't want to take resources away from someone that needs it. Mm -hmm. And then I had to kind of take a step back and say, what this does is it normalizes access to food. Yeah. In a way that we hadn't done before. And it makes kids, especially in a school environment where I think there is sort of a polarization. You know, you received the subsidized lunch. You didn't receive the subsidized lunch. Mm -hmm. I think it does sort of create an atmosphere where there's like a sense of stigma around it. Mm -hmm. And I, I, for myself, I had to come to a place of realizing what was actually happening here. And it was making this a normal thing. Mm -hmm. You know, we, why can't we support all students mm -hmm. rather than just you know othering the students that need mm -hmm. help mm -hmm. so I, actually if, if sorry jason like sure. it's so funny that you bring that up it, but it speaks towards like the the bigness is, the, is bigness a word you're the PhD. hugeness <laughs> the hugeness of the problem bigness <laughs> I <like> um <laughs> Literally, I'm fresh off of two days of having that exact conversation. Like when we talk about food security, it's one of the challenges, um, but also one of the challenges that the team and I welcome in terms of talking about this work. How do you normalize um, the fact that, you know, all kids deserve to eat healthily? I was in a very, um, what we would consider a very affluent county yesterday, but there are these pockets of um areas where people live and they are food insecure and you know the team and i were several months ago we were in another affluent um municipality and the organization we were meeting with said people don't realize there's actually three pockets in this town where the families that live here need um a lot of help and often the reaction especially in our affluent counties is that's not for us in this county Right. It's for it's for them over there. But we have to normalize. This problem is 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 getting bigger. This problem of food insecurity is getting bigger. And one of the ways that we can get ahead of it, really, and really move that needle is by normalizing this idea of what does it actually take for people to be food secure? Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And I, I really I think one of the ways that we can normalize the conversation is to put an emphasis on choice, 100%. to allow the families to choose what they want to eat, what they want to serve their children. Um, you mentioned, you know, cultural awareness and cultural competency, but it's even beyond just that. Um, I wonder if you can speak to what choice means in your organization. Sure, I, I'll I'll speak towards like my my work previously before this one, and then maybe mm -hmm. you can talk about it through like what we're doing mm -hmm. now. So the idea of choice, it's such a simple thing, right? Like, oh yeah, duh, makes sense, let people choose. But when you actually implement it, the idea of implementing choice at a frontline organization that's providing food um, to people, especially right now, I think it's very important for your audience to know most frontline organizations, if not all of our frontline organizations in New Jersey, are actually probably serving more people now than they were at the height of the pandemic, right? Like the one I was running, 
I thought serving 3,800 people a month was bad because we were not set up for that. That was the height of the pandemic. That organization served 5,000 people, you know, the, uh, you know, a couple months ago, and that number hasn't um, gone down. So as our frontline organizations are, are bombarded with this increasing challenge that they're not set up for, the idea of how do you give choice and set up a program and a system and, and deliver services in a way that gives choice is already challenging, right? But then when you actually um, start implementing that, right? What does it look like to have diversity on your shelves at your food pantry and to have culturally competent stuff? I had one board member, you know, shopping around in our choice marketplace with somebody and she was trying to convince her about the health benefits of beans and then that person felt like they had the agency to say, you know what, I actually spent 10 years in prison, so I don't really want to eat beans anymore because for 10 years that's all I ate, right? That's just one example of what it looks like. When you start to implement choice, which is very hard just because you have to spend more, you have to do inventory management different, you have to staff that differently, like the staff time it takes to create choice is just hard operationally, but it's so worth it because the moment the moment you see like that mom walk into your into your organization and they realize in that moment, no matter how beat up they were, they realize they get to say, um, just because I'm poor doesn't mean I can't say I don't like carrots. Right? The moment you can actually see a person f- realize that they get to choose and they get to vocalize what they choose, you can't put that genie back in a bottle. And no matter how hard it is for you organizationally, building that power and that agency for people means so much. And I think that's, I mean, I know you asked like, what does choice look like for for us organizationally, but personally, that's what it looks like to me. And I think that translates into how I want to run this office. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's, that's a great response. And I think people are doing some really amazing work of being creative about offering choice and that some of that was catalyzed by COVID. Um, So a lot of times a choice model will look like someone coming to a food pantry and going shopping. It'll look a lot like a grocery store sometimes. Kuma had a beautiful, beautiful setup um, when I visited there. But with COVID, there was a lot of people doing drive ups and driving through. So switching to can you order online before you come? Look at what's being offered and select it. And as you can imagine, even doing that type of inventorying right, is, is difficult to stay on top of. It takes resources to do that. Um, But the benefits of doing that really instill some self-determination, some dignity to the process. Um, And I think you brought up a a nice point of cultural competency. And I think even just having the conversation and calling out that that type of model exists is important. And I think something that that I've had some conversations with, with some colleagues lately has been the concept of cultural humility. So just understanding I'm bringing my own bias to this conversation or viewpoint around what does healthy mean? What does a full balanced meal mean? Um, there are definitely dietetic standards you can look to, but that's also not necessarily always the best for a family, right? And letting a family really determine what is best for them because it's it's not it's beyond even just the dietetics of it, right? Do I have a reliable source um, of refrigeration? Do I have a stove to be preparing um, a, a meal with many components to it? Or do I work a full-time schedule and I need to think maybe a little uh, simpler in the number of items I'm going to be able to prepare tonight? So the number of decisions that a person has to make to have three meals a day, seven days a week is a lot of things to be thinking through. 
Um, so offering choice allows that person to consider all the things that make them a whole, right? A family or a person that needs to eat a meal um, quite frequently, right? During yeah. the time. Yeah, and I think it also gets to, um, yeah, I, this might be a shock. But I like food. Um, <laughs> me, too, and, me too. This is your favorite episode, yeah. right? Yeah, this, is, this, is, this is a good one for me. Um, but I also like to prepare food. Mm-hmm. And there's a cultural uh, component to the preparation of right. meals. And, you know, the recipes that you pass down from generation to generation. And when families feel like they're in a position where they can't make that choice, mm-hmm. that it's all beans and carrots, yeah, they don't have that. They lose that connection to history and the yeah. traditions. Yeah. So I, I think it, I, I really applaud you for doing right. that work and, and really emphasizing choice in, in your work. You know, two things um, I'll, I'll also share. So one, let's take it back to when you and I first met when when ACEs and Adverse Childhood Experiences was first becoming a conversation here in New Jersey. Um, you know, you and I were in those meetings where we really said, um, and this is me making the connection for your audience and for the three of us here between food security and trauma-informed care and resilience, um, we we say if you want to combat adversity in childhood, build up community and part of building up community is celebrating culture and celebrating things like um, our ancestors gave us more than our scars, right? It gave us beautiful culture. So choice gives that celebration of culture, to your point, is that such a strong point. Um, you know, it, it goes through this like larger calling and exhortation of why should we focus on um, on choice? And, you know, the other thing I'll say, Jason, like um, in terms of choice, the other reason I think it's so important for any organization is it's transformational for our teams, right? If all of a sudden we put a stake in the ground and we center our organizational culture and our organization, the way we develop our culture and our teams around this idea of we're going to allow people to voice their opinions, to tell us what they need, and we're going to listen, and we're going to respond to their needs, and we're going to give choices. That's transformational. Absolutely. Um, So when we talk about choice, I think another component to that is the availability of fresh food. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of those, like, enduring myths about what food access looks like Mm -hmm. that it can only be canned goods and dried goods and you know you get the you know the church food drive and you dig out the can of cranberries that you didn't want anyway that's right donate um but how important is it to offer fresh options and how and how do you accommodate that Mm -hmm. because i i think that does add some sort of logistical hurdles as well right yeah Sure. sure. So I'll start, and Mark can definitely speak to the resources it takes, I think, more so to offer that. Um, it's hugely important, one, just for diversity in your diet and having, you know, nutritious, healthy, rich foods. Um, and I think it's it's all about balance, too, right? So I think canned items do have a place, an important place, especially for people who maybe um, have to think about preparation and time, right? So I think it really is a balance. And when we think about frozen foods, right, canned foods, fresh foods, a diverse, diversity in offerings, I think is really important, um, especially I, I would all imagine, right, when we think about children, right, maybe some children like to eat 
frozen string beans more than they like to eat fresh string beans? Or can I store that as easily as I can store something else? So I think it's all important. Um, I think it's really important though to elevate and push the conversation towards fresh foods um, because I think it, since it does take more resources to offer it, yeah. sometimes we consider it secondly. And I think maybe we need to consider it first and then have the other staples as um, an addition or, or, or a supplement. Um, and I think part of the conversation all around is a much larger conversation about the charitable food sector. And we think about food pantries and food banks and the purpose of them and what they were originally intended to do was to supplement diets um, and not on a chronic basis. That's not necessarily what we're seeing nowadays with this high need and chronic need over time, right? Um, so if we are having families that are coming to a pantry to access food on a regular basis um, and for the majority of their household food items, um, then we definitely need to be talking about offering healthy, fresh items. Um, to make sure that their diet is is adequate for their wants and their needs, right? Um, and that's not originally necessarily how that system was built and intended, um, where someone might be in an emergency situation and they can go get, you know, a bag of food item offerings that are very shelf stable, right? And that's something to bolster their, their food budget in a way. Um, so I think it's all important, but I think we got to start and continue shifting the narrative towards, you know, those fresh items. And I'll say part of what the team and I, Dr. Jenny and myself, Jamel, our program manager, Rose, our program coordinator, one of the things that we're really striving for here in New Jersey is to make that connection between the food supply that our state actually produces and how we can get that to the organizations that are serving the, the families that um, can make use of the fresh food. Like we have a lot of fresh food here in New Jersey. Um, part of what we're trying to do is um, through our office is find the collaborators and convene the collaborators collaborators so we can create this infrastructure and these collaborative efforts to get our food supply to where it can do the most good. Um, what does it look like operationally to provide choice? So choice is transformational, not just for organization, not just for organizational culture. It will physically transform your organization because you have to reevaluate your use of space um, to provide choice. Um, and all of a sudden you have to reevaluate. This is where things like trauma-informed space design come into play. This is what I was utilizing. When you're reevaluating how you use your space and you tack onto that trauma-informed space design, make your space cleaner, make it more open because once you're, you're doing choice in fresh food, you've got to open it up a little, uh, a little bit more so you can move the fresh food because it's bulkier. Right. Then you need refrigeration, which means you have to change, you know, the power that runs through your um, space and you have to spend a lot more. I was buying from four local farmers and one of the only Native American um, farms in our area. Um, and we were paying more uh, for it. So it's an organizational decision that you commit to that. You're going, you're going to go through this transformation of choice. Um, so it, it tacks on more to your, your operational spend, your space use, um, your partnership building. And then it's also, um, it also takes a lot to like make sure that you're sourcing properly and inventorying it um, properly. But the trade-off, the payoff, 
is just that power, that agency that you're able to help create, and the way that you as an agency and organization is able to engage with the people you're helping. Sure. Yeah, I was thinking to myself when you were talking about that, it builds equity, it builds empowerment. It's, you know, it, it becomes a, a very simple, well, we need to provide more fresh food to we need to transform how we do it. Yeah. I think that's that's really powerful. Yeah. Um, you had talked a little bit about collaboration. And last month, I know that, um, you know, your office participated in the conference that we had hosted with the New Jersey Task Force on Child Abuse and Neglect around race, poverty, and neglect, and what that means in child welfare. Um, at that conference, uh, Dr. Jenny, I believe you were the mm -hmm. one having the conversations <laughs> with some of our child welfare professionals. Um, what was surprising from some of those conversations? And, and you know, what kind of connections were you able to make? Sure. Well, it was a great conference. It was a great turnout. Um, so I was glad I was able to attend. Um, I don't know if anything was surprising, but more so validating to hear. Um, so I'm a social worker. So one, number one, it was great to connect with some great. fellow social workers there. <laughs> Shout out to the social workers. Um, but I think there was this acknowledgement and an opportunity to talk about how food can very much be a common denominator for people. Um, and thinking about food pantries in a new way, um, as opposed to just thinking of them as a last stop or a catch-all to someone who's experiencing hunger or food insecurity, um, but as a community resource and an opportunity for, you know, as professionals and with, you know, respectful boundaries coming to meet people where they're at. Um, because we also, we all know, right, I would imagine as those working in the welfare spaces, you know, families who are needing to access basic needs services are having to access a lot of different points and processes to get all of their needs met. So if we can think about pantries as a trusted source, a community resource, um, it's really a nice avenue to think about, you know, even just convening community together, right? Not just the people working in the social issue, but those experiencing it. And I think there was a lot of interest in thinking about that model in a different way and not just as something to point people to, but as something to collaborate with. Um, and I'm excited to, to think about over the next year what that could look like. Um, almost these hubs, right, of resources, these hubs of community. Um, which deserve a lot of respect and resources to back that up. It's a it's a tall order to ask also for for those um, you know working in that space. Yeah, but it, it's so important and so transformative. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about this when we were talking about the fresh food conversation, um, but I think there are a lot of myths around um, food insecurity, and I'm wondering if we can speak to what some of the misconceptions might be and what are some of those myths that we really have to break down um, so that we can move forward in maybe a new way that people hadn't really envisioned before. Because I don't think the system was designed to operate the way it is. But that doesn't eliminate the need. Jason's saving the lightest question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I warned you up a little yeah. bit. Yeah, right, right. I, I see what you did there. I see, I see, I see what you did there. But the myths around food, I mean, you want to tackle that one first? I have so many Sure, on sure, that. sure. Give me one second. <laughs> you don't have to go for it. No, no, no. Well, I'm interested. What are you going to say? Go ahead. You go. So I think the, the, the myths, one of the main myths when, when I talk about, actually, it's interesting. I actually 
talk about this myth um, when I'm both lecturing or giving trainings on trauma and resilience, um, as well as food security, is the whole myth of the us and them, mm-hmm. right? That, and we, we touched on this. Th- this is not a problem in my area, in my city. It's, it's a them problem, yep. right? But I think we have to dispel that and say that if we're talking about transformational work to offer choice, to create food security, to build resilience, there is, there is no us or them. There's only us, right? And there's a huge difference between seeing poor people and people living in poverty, right? You see poor people, you try and it's, it's them and you're going to try and change people. But you see people living in poverty and all of a sudden you challenge yourself to change the system that we're all a part of. Right? So I think that the myth or us of us and them is one of the, the main um, myths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think there's, um, you know, this, this concept, of, you know, we were, we were on a call actually yesterday and I was having a conversation about, you know, there's this American culture around pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You know, it's a moral failing in a way to be in poverty or especially with food, not be able to put food on, on the table and, that's just not true, right? And there are many people who need to access um, food benefit programs are working. They're they're working multiple jobs, right? It's it's especially in New Jersey, it's a high cost of living state, right? There's a lot that needs to be covered with your household expenses. Um, and I would also say that one conversation we've been having a lot about, and this brings in the agriculture pieces, when we talk about when we even just hear the word food insecurity, that does not mean the classic concept of just hunger and a food bank, right? It's so much more than that. And food security is about all of us in the state. Um, And what's the food system we live in? What are the opportunities to have a sustainable food system? How are we all going to approach things like climate change or any kinds of shocks or vulnerabilities to, you know, what we rely on is a very globalized, industrialized food system, um, so we all can potentially be at risk for food insecurity. So we need to talk about it that way, right? It's not just them. It's all of us and all of us being able to, you know, access the the available foods that are appropriate for all of our needs on a very sustained basis. This is also not just about a snapshot in time um, when we see abundance in the summer, right? It's thinking about during the whole year and during over time, um, do we all have what we need? Yeah. And, you know, Jenny, to to the idea of, like, like this is the first time I'm actually addressing you. <laughs> Jason just keeps taking up all the time. and attention. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave. <laughs> <laughs> to, to the idea of us, us, this is about all of mm-hmm. us, right? Um, Jason, to you, and to your question about what are, what are, what are the other myths that we, um, that we have? I think this, I, the idea of just like, um, Oh my gosh, I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to put it. Oh my God, I'm losing it. <laughs> That's one of those days. I know, I was, <laughs> I was just going to put it. Oh. Cross sector, cross department, cross agency, all people. I just lost it. If it comes back to me, I'll. I'll wow, it could have been a mic drop of the. <laughs> I know it could have. We, we just saw. We missed it. Yeah, yeah that, that's what I get for cracking a joke, right in the in the middle of it, yeah. like for in terms of the myths mm-hmm. that are. Mm-hmm. Um, that we have. Well, this is what I would say. I would say a lot of a lot of the conversation that we've been having is, you know, when we talk about this social issue, and there's great need, and there's great um, opportunity in it, and I think what we've been saying is. 
the more we can have a holistic, well-rounded concept of food insecurity, we're really just calling a bigger invitation to think in different sectors and to think differently about who needs to be in this conversation to address the need for those currently experiencing it, those at risk for experiencing it, and just, you know, as a society, right, having this conversation about a very real basic need. Um, it's the same as similar to housing, right? A lot of these yeah. things that we all have to be able to access. I remembered it. I knew that would do it. <laughs> <laughs> the myth of scarcity, mm -hmm. Jason. Um, when we're faced with such big need, especially now, like the number of people that need our help keeps rising. There's this myth that there's not enough resources and, uh, oh no, we've got to do more, right? But what if we just flipped it? This is the all of us mm -hmm. thing that you were that you were saying what made me think of it. If we just realized, and what if we flipped the script and said, we're all here. We're all trying to do this together. And maybe, just maybe, that could be enough to actually move the needle. Then we, be, we have a strengths-based perspective and we can bust this myth of scarcity. We don't have enough to, to help people. And we can say, what are the assets that our families bring to the table, that our young people bring to the table, that our state agencies bring uh, to the table? And if we just put it all together, how can we form Voltron and actually really attack this problem together? That's how I know your uh, <laughs> 80s pop culture. Yeah. You just referenced Voltron <laughs> in a government podcast. In a government. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I've accomplished everything I've set out to do with this you podcast. Just... <laughs> I got Voltron in here. Um, but I think going back to this idea of myth, and even initially when we started having the conversation about bringing in off the food security advocate uh, onto this podcast, we said, oh, it would be great to have you in November because Thanksgiving and food drives and all of that. And I think I realized right away, like, that there's not more, I mean, there's a need, there's always a need, yep. but it's not just in November. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what can we do to let people know, like, it's great that you're donating food when you're thinking about your own family dinners for Thanksgiving, but how can you support this need throughout the rest of the year? Want me to guess? Yeah, sure. Uh, so not that I would suggest this conversation happens around the Thanksgiving table necessarily, but... Uh, you know, really? <laughs> like, no. Um, you know, I think just having the conversation and and trying to think about stigma, think about bias, think about the system that we're living in, and not necessarily, you know, the way you can contribute to solving it, but the just the role the system plays in creating environments and barriers and challenges to what people are, are facing when it comes to their basic needs. And I think just practicing that acknowledgement and trying to step outside yourself, I think is a huge piece of the puzzle. I think one of the things um, as a researcher that's just a little more difficult to identify or dig into is that stigma and bias piece. And I think a lot of that can come, you know, just from our culture and society of trying to self-reflect, trying to understand um, kind of the mountain that people, a lot of people are facing. Um, there's a, not to be a broken record, but as I said in the beginning, there's so many factors that contribute to it. And I think it can be really easy sometimes to place the issue at an individual person or a household's 
you know, doorstep when really we have to think about a whole as a whole, um, what what are you know, our cultural responsibilities, our society's responsibilities um, to addressing the issue and not just, you know, um, reflecting on that in a moment in time. As I had just referred to before, food security happens all year round. So it's something to at least have in the back of your mind all year round. And I think if we're going to ask ourselves, how can we help and how can we move the conversation going? I I think, I mean, for, for your audience, just emphasizing that November, December, this is, these are hard months and things are growing. So I want to, if I could, I'd just like to encourage anybody that's listening to ask your frontline organizations doing this work, how can I best help you? What, what, do you, what do you need? Is it money? Is it food? Is it fresh food? Ask and listen and respond to what they tell you. I mean, bonus, that's what we should be doing for the families that we're trying to help. But then to your original question of how do we move this forward? What can we do throughout the year? you continue to ask with great purpose and intention, right? Because at some points it's it's hard to ask this question. Life gets in the way, it gets busy. But if you have intention, if you have purpose, that you want to keep asking this question, you want to keep challenging yourself, your organization around this idea of choice and power and agency and transformation, ask with great intention and with great purpose consistently throughout the year. So lastly, and I think this is a question we're going to be asking ourselves ongoing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, I don't expect you to have the, the total complete answer at Ooh. the end of this, but okay. challenge. Um, Ready? We Ready? Like Doc, a challenge. challenge. She's a PhD. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, and then he has something and we're like, we don't have the answer. <laughs> yeah. But how do we, you know, the department of children and families, the office of food security advocate, how do we work together? Um, and I think we've already identified many ways that we can work together, but how can we continue that to develop that relationship to ensure that there's really a seamless safety net for families when they need help? Mm-hmm. Well, so I think that's a great question. I think there's a ton of opportunity. I think one thing that I'm excited about is to continue to learn about resources and programs that you all have access to and through, um, likewise us, because I think, you know, one thing that's difficult for families, um, especially with many diverse needs, is it's not a one-stop shop. They have to go to several access points. So I think the more we're all aware of what exists, the better we can communicate that to people who are seeking it out um, and streamline, you know, and remove as many of those you know, time, transportation barriers that exist across the board. Um, so better communication, I think, as a whole would be really awesome to see. And and I would say, um, and I truly, truly mean this because because um, now we have your cell phone, Jason, so we're just going to keep texting you, right? And I'm going to mention this to your commissioner. Yeah, uh, shout out here. to Commissioner Byer. <laughs> <laughs> Delete. Um, the New Jersey Department of Children and Families um, is one of the leading just organizations of the state that's having the conversation on being trauma-informed and building resilience. I truly, truly believe that for organizations, for people, um, for any of us to truly um, understand food security, uh, and especially in the implementation phase of any kind of food security programming, we have a better shot of accomplishing that, grasping that, understanding that, 
if we are trauma-informed, right? If we are centered on the idea of building resilient families, resilient children, resilient communities. So how can we, as the Office of the Food Security Advocate, take all the amazing knowledge and experience and resources that DCF has um, and infuse all of that into this um, nation-leading food security work that the state is aspiring to, right? We're the only state in the country that has an executive level food security office that's pushing policies. So how can we take all of this resilience language that you guys have and infuse it into that work? I think that's the, that's the secret sauce and that's how we work together. I think that sounds great. I think that there are going to be definitely opportunities to do that because I think that um, the the work that you do is so important um, and it matters to the families that we all support and we all care about. So I thank you for that. Um, before we go, I know that there are different access points to get help in people's communities, but if somebody is looking for help, where do they start? Um, so I know some people... Um, we'll be like, what? That's not true. Um, there's actually, um, NJ211 is going through a huge transformation right now. Yeah. Um, their chief operating officer, uh, shout out to Kevin, is a personal friend of mine. I think going on to NJ211, the website is new. You can go there. Findhelp.org um, is also a website that you can use um, um, for this. Um, those, are two, those are two places I would, I would go if somebody needs, um, needs help. Mm-hmm. And I think we're actually partnering with 2112 to kind of oh, reimagine how we're supporting families. So I think that it's a really great connection back. Yeah. So thank you so much. Um, next month, we're going to have members of our DCF Youth Council here in studio. Um, it's going to be a lot of people here, um, but <laughs> I'm really looking forward to the conversation as we talk about the Sibling Bill of Rights and all of the work that they did to prepare that and to advance that through the legislature. It really is uh, amazing work. Um, whether we're talking about nourishing families or nourishing family connections, um, it all comes back to this this idea of supporting the family. And I'm really grateful that we get to work in this space. Um, so thank you so much for tuning in. Um, on behalf of my producers and the DCF Office of Communications and Public Affairs, this is Jason Bukowski signing off. Tune in next month for more DCF on the Internet.